The following message by Alistair Begg is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. I invite you to follow along as I read from 2 Samuel chapter 21 and beginning at the 15th verse. To Samuel and chapter 21 and verse 15. And in this section, we read of the ongoing war that was taking place with the Philistines. Uh, The timing of it is not identified for us, but uh, here we are um, introduced to the ongoing battle between the Lord's people and the Philistines. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants— And they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jair Origim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Amen. Well, a brief prayer. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth and plant it deep in us, we pray. For Christ's sake. Amen. Well, any of you who are visiting may wonder why it is that we would come to a passage like this on this particular day, and it is because we are working our way systematically and consecutively through Second Samuel at the moment, and we got as far as verse 14 last Sunday, which means we must pick it up here at 15 this Sunday. I hope that we may have at least some sense that there is a point of contact between what we're reading here and what we are celebrating as a nation on Memorial Day weekend, insofar as we remember those who gave their lives in the cause of the kingdom, our kingdom. And we have here the record of those 
who were the servants of David the king. And what we have in this concluding section of chapter 21 is the first of two lists of David's mighty men. Uh, We will come to the others in a week or two from now. And what we have are the names here of four warriors who played a significant part in the wars against the Philistines. And although there is not a great deal of detail in this, uh, their role is worthy of mention. They were descendants, these four individuals, of the giants of Gath. Uh, Those giants, as verse 22 tells us, fell at the hand of David. God, you will remember, those of you who have been studying with me for a while, you will remember that God had made a promise when David became king. And the promise was, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. David was to be entrusted with the responsibility of doing what Saul and his group had failed to do. And so it was that hope for victory rested in David. But, as is apparent at least from this little section of 21, he was not operating single-handedly. And so he uh, is here in these four incidents, either mentioned or, as it were, on the sidelines, unmentioned. And it would seem that what the writer has done here is akin to what we find at memorial celebrations and in cemeteries around uh, the nation, and that is he has, if you like, provided for us a role of honor, a role of honor. These people did this in their day in order that when people would read this material, they would then recount the faithfulness of God and His provision for them. And the story of what had happened would be handed down to posterity. It's very, very brief. Uh, One of the commentators referred to the writer's approach here as a telegraphic brevity. But it is the kind of brevity that is appropriate for a list, isn't it, for an honors list. And three of these four incidents appear again in 1 Chronicles chapter 20. You can find them. The details differ there, but it is a parallel passage. And the refrain that runs through what we have just read is, there was war again. You will see that in verse 15, then in 18, then in 19, and in 20. And here in verse 15, we're told that as the war continues with the Philistines, David, along with his servants, did what we have grown accustomed to seeing David do, namely, he went down to them, went down into the battle. And we're told that in the fighting that ensued, with just three words in English, David grew weary. He grew weary. At this point, if you picture him there, he's no longer the ruddy-faced youth, handsome in his appearance with striking gaze, who was prepared to go toe-to-toe with a giant Goliath. By this point, life has etched lines on his face, Uh, Life has stiffened his limbs. Life has extended his recovery time. And everyone looking on recognizes that he is something of a shadow of the man he once was. 
And he is, as the text tells us, battle-weary. He's weary. Now, what then follows are four incidents, and I want just to look at them briefly, and then to consider what the implications of these incidents are. Or, if you like, to consider the what, what is described for us here, then to consider the so what, what difference does it make to the price of gasoline this morning, kind of thing, and then the now what, but only briefly in the end. So, first of all, then, these four incidents. Incident number one, you will see there, then, in verse 16. If you're looking for a boy's name, here's a suggestion, Ishbi Benob. Uh, it's just as well that somebody who has a name like that was a giant. You will notice that he was one of the descendants of the giants, the Rephaim. We read about them earlier, and we're not going to go back and rehearse that. A good Bible dictionary will help you on your way. He had a spear that was a heavy spear, similar to Goliath, uh, but only half the weight of Goliath's spear. If you remember, that was 15 pounds, and this is seven and a half pounds. He also, we're told in the text, has been armed with a new sword, and it would seem that he decided he would try and capitalize on the fact that David now was weary from the battle and see if he might kill him. He thought to kill David. He thought to kill the king. But verse 17 tells us that Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid. Now, we know Abishai from the past, and we know his brother, the sons of Zeruiah. They were, they were uh, pretty brutal. And um, David, uh, on one occasion back in 2 Samuel 3, you will perhaps recall, he says of these two uh, brothers, they, I was gentle on this day, but they were more severe than I. And in many ways, they were troublesome. But here it is, that uh, Abishai uh, proves his worth in defense of David by stepping forward, attacking the Philistine, and killing him. And as a result, his name is now going to appear in the dispatches. It will now be recorded for posterity that Abishai stepped in to save the king. He killed the giant, and he was responsible for this victory. What we then discover is that this close call uh, led to David's men essentially taking away his car keys. That is, uh, that is a very loose paraphrase. Then David's men swore to him, you're not going to be driving anymore, David. No, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. What is this about? Well, if you remember way back, you remember that the very start of it all, the, the lamp was burning in the sanctuary when the word of Eli comes to Samuel. And there it burned as a symbol, as it were, of the abiding faithfulness of God and of His purpose for His people, and how God, in fulfilling His purposes, is raising up His servants, and supremely this servant, and the people look on this scene. They realize how quickly and how easily David could have been snuffed out. And they realize that if the king were to be snuffed out, 
then it would mean the collapse of the community, for the life of the king was the key to the life of the community. And we've seen this all the way through. What happens to the king impacts the kingdom. Now, for those of you who are now familiar with the way in which we're approaching this, I am assuming that already as you sit there, you are sensing how the record here of these victories under David provides an anticipation of the ultimate victories under Jesus the King. I'm assuming that you're there. If you're not, then that's okay, because you will be there by the end, because I'll make it explicitly clear. That's incident number one. Incident number two in verse 18, short to the point, after this there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. We don't know where Gob was. It might have been a suburb of a place called Gizar, which is mentioned in the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 20. Sibekai, the Hushathite, interestingly, he's got his whole name. But again, that's appropriate. You don't usually go and see memorials to uh, the heroes of warfare in the past, and it just says Bob, you know, or, or, or Tom. No, it would say the full name so that people would be able to distinguish between one and another. And here into the annals of the military record goes the name of Sibekai the Hushathite, who struck down Saf. Now, again, you see, if the writer had decided to flesh all of this out, to expand it, there would be a whole backstory to all of this, clearly. But it isn't there. The wider context is not provided— nor is any indication given in that 18th verse in the second incident of David's part, of David's participation, if there was any participation at all on the part of David. Incident 3 in verse 19. And there was again war with the Philistines. You see the refrain? At Gob, same place. And Elhanan, the son of Jair, Origim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So, once again, we have the record of another victory in David's name, but once again with no mention of David himself. Now, it will become immediately apparent to you that this verse— contradicts what we have learned, apparently contradicts what we have learned of the death of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, because we recall that at the very threshold of David's engagement as the, uh, the champion of the kingdom, he took down Goliath. And as a result of this apparent contradiction, uh, the commentators just go up in a blaze and seek to provide all kinds of interpretations as to what is going on. The passage that I've just mentioned in 1 Chronicles 20 actually says that uh, the person who was killed was Lammi, the brother of Goliath. So, it gets worse, because that means that this verse 19 not only contradicts, apparently, 1 Samuel 17, but also uh, apparently contradicts uh, 
the Chronicles passage as well, because they said it wasn't Goliath who was killed, it was his brother. And so, we're not going to delay on this. I'm just going to give you a summary statement in a moment. But if, you like, if your brain works this way, have a great life. And uh, simply Google it, and you will, you will have all—let uh, me give you one place you might look is R.K. Harrison's Introduction to the Old Testament, and uh, you will find uh, much there that will be helpful to you. Uh, one possibility, of course, is that there is another Goliath, and so on and so forth. It seems most probable, it seems most probable and least problematic, that the Chronicles passage actually preserves the original text, and that scribal accidental errors in transmission have given us the statement here in Second Samuel. Now, don't, be, don't fall off your horse in, in the hearing of that, because remember that our doctrine of Scripture is that it is absolutely infallible as originally given. And in the same way that we've seen in going through this, when we've come to some of those numbers that seem vastly disproportionate, we've had to reckon with the fact that in the scribal work that is provided for us translation after translation, that would not be uh, an impossibility. Anyway, suffice it to say that when it was written in this way, it was never intended that we would get off our trolley and spend a long time trying to deal with this apparent contradiction. Incident number four is then in verse 20. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, or it might be a man of great strife. Uh, it would appear that he was both a man of strife and a man of stature. And if the previous incident is overshadowed by a textual difficulty, this present incident stands the risk of being overshadowed by this physical abnormality. And the way in which this man is identified, fascinatingly, is not by his name, but by the structure of his hands and his feet. And I wonder just why it is that it says he had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, and then it says 24 in number. <laughs> it's like the, right, the writer thinks we can't count? Or I, what, what is this? I, I, I think it's simply to make the point, this, this, was, this was very, very significant. I've gone online to check and discovered that uh, this actually uh, is, a, is a genetic feature throughout the world in different places and at different times. Therefore, it is not uh, unique. And in fact, in the literature, uh, this particular verse in 2 Samuel 21 is given as evidence of this genetic abnormality, which appears from time to time. But what, what got this man in trouble was not his fingers and his toes, but his mouth. And it wasn't his anatomy, it was his attitude. He taunted Israel. In other words, he was identified right along with Goliath himself, who, when he had stood out on the battlefield before this boy fellow that was there to challenge him, he said quite proudly, I defy the armies of Israel. I defy the living God of Israel. And of course, we know what happened to him. 
And here what we discover is the exact same thing. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimei, or it's also translated, it's also, uh, you'll find the name, it's the same name, Shammah. Um, it's, it's, uh, you'll find it a number of ways, two or three ways. Uh, he, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. That, that's a, just a passing reminder to us, isn't it, of how on that day when Samuel came to the house of Jesse, and he was looking for somebody that would be set apart as king, he had the brothers come out. And in fact, Shimei is mentioned, or Shammai is mentioned in that, that he came out. And Samuel said, no, it's, it's not him. It's not him. And here, quite remarkably, interestingly, although he was not the one chosen to be king, his son, Jonathan, is the one who strikes down this giant, makes a substantial contribution to the wars against the Philistines. And verse 22 gives us the summary. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So those are the incidents. What then of uh, the implications? What are we to make of these? What, what lessons are to be learned from uh, these uh, military annals? A list that, of course, is the question that you're waiting for an answer for, and I have been struggling for an answer throughout the days of this week. Let's remember that as we seek to do this, that we set always the narrative, the story that we're dealing with, in the great panoramic narrative of the Bible itself. Let's remember that when Paul, for example, writes to Timothy as a young man to encourage him to continue in his pastoral ministry, in the course of exhortation, he says to them, I want you to remember the things that you have become convinced of, knowing the people that you learned it from, and how uh, from infancy you have known the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He's referring to the Old Testament. He's referring to the fact that when Timothy took up his Bible, the Old Testament, and allowed the pages of Scripture, the unrolling scroll of Scripture, to fasten in his mind and to stir his heart, then it was in order that he might see beyond King David to the king who was to come, great David's greater son. And so, with that in mind, then let me give you simple observations or implications, and I don't think there is any doubt but that you could add to each of these. I remember exams at school. I'm sure you had the same thing, where you had one of those essay questions, compare and contrast. I remember, uh, so for example, uh, compare Compare, the reign, compare and contrast the reign of Queen Victoria with the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. And if you didn't know anything about either one, you were completely at sea. Sometimes you could think of a number of contrasts. You couldn't think of any comparisons at all. 
while these are somewhat random. We are comparing and contrasting the reign of King David with the reign of King Jesus. Number one, David had a team. He had a team. He wasn't a one-man band. The four that are mentioned here, Abishai, Sibachai, Elhanan, and Jonathan, were representative of the fact that when it says that they fell by the hand of David, they were operating underneath his kingly rule. They were side by side with him in the battle. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ put together his team, his team of disciples. And as he nears the end of his earthly pilgrimage, he says to them in Luke chapter 22, "'You are those who have stayed with me in my trials.'" You are, if you like, my mighty men. Well, they didn't seem very mighty, did they? No, but they were. And many of these characters seemed less than capable for the task. But King David had his mighty men, and Jesus enlists his mighty men and women. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helper other lives to bring? Who will leave the world side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for him will go? That's the question. That's the question for our children in Vacation Bible Camp. That's the question for our teenagers as we seek to nurture them. That's the question, Mr. Businessman. Are you on the Lord's side? Would your name appear in the military annals of King Jesus? Here he is, full name, on the Lord's side. The purpose of our study is in order that those who are not may enlist, and that those who are enlisted may take it seriously. By thy call of mercy, by thy grace divine, We then are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. Second implication. If David's lamp is snuffed out, the community collapses. If David's lamp is snuffed out, the community collapses, because he is the lamp of Israel. He knows that God is his lamp. God is his light. His is a reflective glory, if you like. And in the same way, if Jesus Christ's life was snuffed out, then the community has collapsed. That's what Paul says. If Christ be not raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. So, the idea that somehow or another you know, our interest in these things or our concern about Jesus has to do with, you know, how it makes me feel or whatever that might be, uh, just dies before the instruction of the Bible. Because the Bible says, consider the history of this. These, these are records of what took place. And the whole of the Gospels are providing us the records of what took place with King Jesus. If he were to be gone, there is no reason to be present. Thirdly, David had his car keys removed. He was sidelined from the battle. Jesus is never sidelined from the battle. David, on occasions, was absent from the fray. Jesus is never absent from the fray. 
Be thou my vision, O Lord, of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my soul shelter, thou my high tower, raise thou me heavenward, O power of my power. I fear no foe with you at hand to guide. Fourthly, Abishai had to intervene with his sword to save David. David was weary. The giant thought he could take him out, and Abishai stepped in. Contrast. Put away your sword, Peter. No one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. I could have called angels who would have come and dealt with this instantaneously. David, the earthly king, was in need of his servant to intervene on his behalf. Jesus, the heavenly king, needs no such intervention. Fifthly, and there are only eight, fifthly, David's lamp was in danger of being quenched. Jesus' lamp is unquenchable. That is actually why um, Justin helped us this morning by reading from the beginning of the prologue of John's gospel, so that we won't be able to refer to it now. All things were made through him, and without him wasn't anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It hasn't overcome it. No matter what you want to say about the rise of political um, ideas and social constructs and philosophies, Jesus is the light of the world. And the darkness has not put it out, and the darkness cannot put it out. We need to say this to ourselves again and again. Sixthly, the wisdom, or the kingdom, I should say, of the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of David's kingdom. You say, well, we know that one. I know you know it but it's good to rehearse it. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of David's kingdom. Of Her Majesty's Jubilee, this is 70 years celebration, like next weekend. That's a long time. She's in her 90s. She has outreigned any other monarch in the history of the United Kingdom. But she will die and someone else will take her place. Jesus shall reign forever and ever, and of his kingdom there is no end. Seventhly, the defeat of the giants foreshadows the ultimate defeat of all of our enemies. In the same way that we're told that these individuals stepped up to the threat and dealt with it under David's jurisdiction and at times alongside 
with the King Himself. In looking at that, we are to realize that in the same way that that was dealt with, so King Jesus deals with our enemies, which is number eight. As servants of the King, we're given victory over our gigantic enemies. As servants of the King, we're given victory over our gigantic enemies. What are the gigantic enemies? Number one, Satan. He's a liar and the father of lies. We're given victory over him. We do not listen to his lies. We do not subscribe to his views of marriage. We do not pay attention to his nonsense about gender. We do not listen to his claims. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. Satan and sin. Thanks be to God who sets us free from sin. We say it to one another all the time. It remains. We deal with it. But in Jesus, it no longer reigns. It doesn't have us under its control. So the victory over Satan, over sin, and over death. Yeah, over death. Hmm. Who, who else has the answer to this? There's nobody. Who has conquered death? Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is risen, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sin? Sting, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the answer on the, the thing this morning, wasn't it? Uh, why does he have to be human? So that he might keep the law in all of its fullness, so that he might bear the punishment for lawbreakers in all of its reality. Jesus. What? Four inc incidents from the military annals. So what? A few observations. Now what? Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, I pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our hearts to clear out wrong thinking, to enable us to think uh, the thoughts of the Bible after the Bible makes it clear to us, to be reminded that you keep your promises and that all of your promises are stamped with the yes and the amen of Jesus, so that we are able to affirm that in Jesus our hope in life and in death is tied solely to him. And in his name we pray. Amen.
You've been listening to a message by Alistair Begg from Truth For Life, and you're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.